This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 88, The Book of Peace. Last time, we found that now Yudhishthira has decided to keep his crown, he really means business. In just a few short days, he put all the government affairs in order. As a display of his piety, he made sure that his uncle, Dhritarashtra, continued to be honored and obeyed according to his rank. By his actions, however, he made it clear that he was the new sheriff in town. We also got treated to the full story of how Parasurama exterminated the Kshatriya caste a total of 21 times. It is interesting that we've heard this story already back in episode 31. That time, the story was told by one of Rama's disciples. Not surprisingly, the former version focused more on Rama's family, while Krishna's story was more concerned with the fate of the Kshatriya caste. One of the things I love about this epic is that the characters sometimes express their own brand of skepticism. In this case, Yudhishthira could not resolve the logical flaw in the claim that Rama killed all the Kshatriyas 21 times in succession. If they were exterminated just once, how could they ever return to be killed again? This quandary has been explained before by saying that he only killed the men, and the women compensated by breeding with Brahmins. I've had my doubts about that because, not long ago, Karna said that the race of suttas were created the exact same way. Also, Manu tells us that the sons of Brahmin men are also Brahmins. It appears that Yudhishthira also had his doubts about this explanation, because he asks to hear the story again, but this time he wants to know precisely how his race survived genocide 21 times and yet still survives today. As soon as the new king had gotten his kingdom in order, Krishna advised that they better pay a visit to Bhishma and milk him for advice, because he was not long for this world. Their first meeting took place last episode, and, in preparation for the coming lectures, Krishna granted Bhishma both relief from his injuries and divine understanding so he could better illustrate his instructions. That procedure consumed what was left of that day, so the king and his retinue returned to the capital for the night. Early the next morning, the king, his brothers and cousins, Krishna and Satyaki, again returned to Bhishma's side at Kurukshetra. As he had the day before, Krishna took the lead and greeted first the Rishis and then Bhishma. Yudhishthira hung back a bit sheepishly. Narada then addressed the group, saying, The time has come for you to question Bhishma on the subject of Dharma, because he will soon expire. Naturally, everyone looked to Yudhishthira, but he was hesitant. Finally, he said, The only one among us who is worthy to question our uncle would be Krishna, so go ahead and ask some questions. Krishna obliged and asked Bhishma, Did you pass the night comfortably? I hope you are free of your angst and pains. Is your mind as sharp and clear as ever? Bhishma said, Thanks to you, I feel like a young man again. Moreover, all the wisdom of the scriptures is at my command. Just ask me anything and I'll have a good answer. But tell me this, why even bother using me to get at this information? You could answer any questions as well as I could. Krishna said, that is all true, but I decided to enhance your fame and let you teach posterity on the duties of kings and the people. So anything you say shall be taken on the same authority as the Vedas themselves. Bhishma said, Very well, let's talk about Dharma. What would you like to know? Fire away. Bhishma waited expectantly, but Krishna finally broke the silence. He said, Well, Yudhishthira here is feeling bashful. He's ashamed of what he's done to you and your people. He's afraid you'll curse him. That was as good a place to start as any, so Bhishma began his instruction. He said, As the duty of a Brahmin is to study and do penance, 
So the duty of a warrior is to give up their lives in battle. Even fathers, brothers, friends, and family should be slain if they take up arms against you. Manu himself taught that a man who fights in a righteous battle wins fame in this world and heaven in the next. Finally, Yudhishthira got enough courage to approach his uncle. Tearfully, he embraced the old man's feet. Gently, Bhishma said, Do not be afraid, my child. Ask me anything. The rest of this book, and the entirety of the next, which is called The Book of the Final Teachings, are composed of this simple interview, in which Yudhishthira poses a question, and then Bhishma answers. In many cases, Bhishma's answers are tiresome lists of good and bad traits or behaviors among classes of people. For instance, Yudhishthira's first question was for Bhishma to simply list all the duties of a king. Bhishma's answer is comprehensive, detailed, and full of tips and tricks. He begins with religious matters, stressing that a king must do sacrifices and honor the gods, and most importantly, he is always to be generous to Brahmins and never to punish them. If a Brahmin turns out to be a really bad apple, then exile him, make him someone else's problem. Moving on to court life, Bhishma gave some good management advice, such as never indulge in jokes or games with the servants. He said that if a king mingles freely with the staff, they will soon learn to disrespect him. They will get uppity and start putting on airs. Corruption will be soon to follow. While Brahmins should always go untouched, even the king's gurus and sons should be chastised if they transgress the king's law. This advice goes on and on, filling pages, so if any of you are planning on running a kingdom, I suggest you refer to the unabridged text, because I'm going to skim over a lot. Yudhishthira's next question was more philosophical. He wanted to know why the world needed kings and how the institution first began. Bhishma said, way back in the Krita Yuga, in the Golden Age, there was no need for kings, because everyone looked out for each other and no one was abusive. But over the course of our long decline, people lost the ability to get along, and strife broke out. He said that at some point our perceptions became more limited and we became greedy. From there, things quickly spiraled downward. In all this chaos, even the Vedas were forgotten. The anarchy disturbed even the gods and they went to Brahma for help. Brahma's solution was surprisingly roundabout. First, he compiled everything that a king needed to be and do. He made a great big list, which is supplied here at length and handed the compilation over to Shiva. Shiva then wrote a condensed version of this code book and gave it to Brahaspati, who again developed an abridgment which is called the Brahaspatya. At the same time as all of this, Brahma sent Vishnu down to do his thing. Vishnu's strategy was equally convoluted. He sent down an avatar who was called Virajas. But it turned out that Virajas just wasn't interested in kingly stuff so he became an ascetic instead. Virajas had a son. Virajas had a son, but the kid was no better. This went on for four more generations, and while their quality declined, none were interested in being a king. The seventh and final son of this long line of ne'er-do-wells was named Vena. Vishnu's earthly lineage had declined so badly that this boy Vena was wrathful and malicious. He was so bad that the Rishis went after him. Using blades of grass as their only weapon, the holy men slashed Vena's leg. From the wound in his right thigh sprang a dark-skinned, red-eyed dwarf. It says 
that the Nishadas and all other Mlechas are descended from this dwarf. From a cut in Vena's right arm sprang a valiant knight clad in armor and bearing weapons. This guy came preloaded with the unabridged version of Brahma's rules for kingship. The Rishis immediately elected him the king of the world. His name was Prithu. Prithu got right to work and soon put the earth back in order. To honor him, the gods and Rishis held a coronation ceremony for him. The earth gave him a tribute of gems and gold. Under this great king, the golden age was once again restored to the earth. In appreciation, the god Vishnu entered Prithu's body, such that the universe worshipped Prithu, and he was considered one of the human gods. Bhishma's teachings begin in the Shanti Parva, the Book of Peace, and fill the entire book called the Anasasana Parva. In the Shanti Parva, the main gist of his teachings revolves around the institution of kingship and the king's relationship with the other castes. As we've seen, he began with a justification for kingship. His political theory is very simple. Without a king, there is anarchy and abuse. Without a king to keep the peace, no one else can carry out their own duties. And when no one can do their duty, no one enters heaven. Kingship is the linchpin upon which all else depends. If there were no king, the strong would prey on the weak like the fish in the sea. Even a bad king should be honored and obeyed. He said that cows that do not yield milk easily suffer more when milked, but if they are easily milked, they do not suffer at all. Thus subjects should bend gracefully to their ruler and be glad he is not any worse. Having established the king's right to rule and the duty of all others to be ruled, Bhishma moved on to delineating the duties of a king. It must have been good to be a Brahmin in them days, because foremost in a king's duty is to coddle them ceaselessly. He should never tax their wealth and should always give them more wealth. They are to be honored at all times and never punished. The king's second duty is to perform sacrifices. And finally, he is to chastise the wicked and enforce justice. After enumerating the duties of a king, Bhishma moved on to advise the king on how to run his country. For example, a chapter is devoted to listing the duties and character of an ideal minister. He also took great care in advising whom a king should trust and whom he should keep secrets from. In particular, he strongly cautioned against trusting relatives with anything. He said that relatives are always jealous of their more fortunate kinsmen, and so if they appear trustworthy, you should trust them even less. Bhishma's advice for handling relatives is probably still sound today. He said, You should fear your kinsmen as you fear death itself. On the other hand, you will have no more loyal support than from your own blood relatives. In times of great need or disaster, you will need to depend on them as your main support. Therefore, while you should never trust your relatives, you should behave as if you trust them implicitly. Be generous to them and honor them in every way, but always be on your guard. In the light of later events, it's funny that when Bhishma is talking about troublesome relatives, he immediately thinks of Krishna and his cousins, the Yadavas. As had been mentioned earlier, when Gandhari cursed Krishna to be the death of his kinsmen, Krishna obviously had some trouble dealing with these rowdy relatives. Bhishma recollected a dialogue Krishna once had with Narada concerning his cousins. Krishna complained, saying, I have always been more than fair with my kinsmen. I gave them half of my possessions, and I have always forgiven them when they offended me. But still, they constantly grumble about me and quarrel with each other. I'm sure many other people have had similar problems with their relatives. 
so Narada's advice would be really useful. Unfortunately, his suggestion is not very satisfying. His advice was basically to continue to honor and gratify one's relatives, regardless of their bad behavior. And if that doesn't help, then they are the authors of their own downfall, so don't feel bad. Bhishma's next lesson concerned advice on how a king might use competing interests in his government to keep them all in check. As an example, he cited the story of the king of Kosala, whose ministers had been embezzling the treasury. For some reason, a rishi decided to perform an audit on the king's administration. The sage's name was Kalakavrikshya, and he and his pet crow took it upon themselves to investigate the state's finances. He traveled the kingdom and interviewed the king's officers. He told them that his pet crow could reveal to him the past, present, and future. When he had gathered his evidence of malfeasance, he presented it to the king. He pointed out this and that official and said that the crow had informed him of their embezzling. He declared that his crow had never made mistakes. The officials just blew him off and laughed at his pet bird, but that night they had the crow killed. The next day, the sage sought the king's protection, as he feared for his life. The king brought him into his own palace and asked for his advice. The rishi Kalakavrikshya advised the king to act like he didn't care about the bird and to conceal any suspicions he might have of his ministers. He should quietly build up a case against them and then strike quickly. Bhishma said that this king followed the sage's advice, got new, more honest ministers, and soon built himself a great empire. Following this story, many, many pages are devoted to lists, such as the ideal character traits of ministers and generals. We are also told what kinds of cities make ideal capitals, and how the government should be organized at the level of towns and villages. He gives detailed instructions on how a king may lawfully raise revenue, and what means of fundraising are never to be practiced. As you might have guessed, the number one rule is that a king must never, under any circumstances, take the wealth from a Brahmin. His advice for taxation is that the king should start out with just taking a little, and then slowly ratchet up the tax rates. He can also engender conflict among his subjects, and then present himself as the peacemaker, thus making his tax burden more appetizing. Yudhishthira's next request was to hear about the lawful rules of conquest. Bhishma said that once you've picked out a country to conquer, you present yourself and your army to the people and tell them that you are now their king. If they accept you, then great. If they resist, then fight them. If the king is engaged in battle with other Kshatriyas, then it should always be a fair fight. One should even try not to use better weapons or armor than one's opponent. No poisoned or barbed weapons should be used, and if the enemy flees, let them go. Do not kill unarmed or disabled foes. A king who wins a war by cheating is unrighteous and undeserving of victory. Tricks and subterfuge are only justified when your enemy resorts to them first. Yudhishthira next wanted to hear what a king should do if he finds that his ministers have seized power and taken control of his wealth and his army. Bhishma replied by taking up the story of the king of Kosala and his sage advisor Kalakavrikshya, who had the pet crow. He said that at some point, later in his life, the king found himself the victim of a palace coup. Exiled and without a friend, he went to his rishi advisor and asked what his options were. Kalakavrikshya's first suggestion was that the king should give up his desires and forget about ever being rich or powerful again. After all, nothing lasts forever and he would have lost his crown no matter what, 
so we might as well just accept the fact and move on. But if, on the other hand, the king still felt like he'd rather spend his time attempting to win back his realm, that was still an option. The sage said that what an ambitious upstart needs to do is contain his feelings of jealousy, resentment, and greed. He should humbly accept the new regime and offer up his services to the new monarch. He must serve them diligently and honestly. By discipline and upright behavior, he should soon win wealth and honor by his new master. When his position is secure, he should then undermine all potential enemies by sowing conflict among them, but he should never show his hand in these affairs. Eventually, without a doubt, the monarch will trust his minister in all his affairs and will leave the reins of government in his hands. And that is the moment for our hero to strike and once again seize the throne for himself. The former king was a little shaken to hear such a Machiavellian scheme from his revered preceptor. He said, That is certainly a brilliant scheme, but it's still too dishonest for me. There must be a more virtuous way for me to regain my wealth. The sage said, I'm glad to hear this. You truly are a righteous and trustworthy man. It seems that the sage was just testing him, and it turned out that Kalakavrikshya had powerful connections. The Rishi gained an audience with the king of the Vedeyas and recommended the former Kusala king as an honest and wise counselor. The king gave him a job and eventually grew so fond of him that he married his only daughter to him, and so he eventually inherited the throne from his father-in-law. These final teachings are both voluminous and meandering, thus it is difficult to convey what all is in there. While the dominant theme so far is about kingship and its relationship with the rest of the world, occasionally a topic comes up that seems completely out of place. The next lesson is a good example. Yudhishthira observed that some folks appear to be wise and self-realized sages, when in fact they are spiritually unsettled, while others appear to be common or obscure, but have tranquil souls. He wanted to know how one might distinguish these. Bhishma replied with the story of a tiger and a jackal, so we'll end today's episode with that. He said that in ancient times there was a king named Pavrika, who was very cruel and enjoyed hurting others. Thus, when he died, he was reborn as a jackal and grew up in a cremation cot, where these beasts lived on the remains of corpses. Luckily for this jackal, he remembered his past life, and out of repentance he became a vegetarian, was kind to all creatures, and was spiritually devout. His relative purity upset his fellow jackals, who tried to coerce him to a more natural way of life, but our hero remained steadfast. His reputation soon got around, and a tiger approached him and asked to make him his minister. The tiger promised him ample rewards and comforts for his service. The jackal politely declined, saying, It is good that you are always on the lookout for worthy advisors, but I cannot accept your offer. You see, I am perfectly content to be right here. I have no desire for luxury or fame. I live a very simple and pure life, and this will certainly annoy your other counselors. Besides, it is much safer to live out here in the wilderness than to live at the king's palace. Very few who die at a king's orders are genuinely guilty. Most are victims of power struggles or the king's clouded judgment. The jackal's refusal only made him more desirable in the tiger's eyes. Finally, he agreed to consult with the king, but only from his own home, in private, and so long as no other minister suffered for his advice. The tiger agreed to his terms, and traveled in person to the jackal's cemetery to get his advice. 
Of course, even that was enough to spark jealousy among the other ministers. Furthermore, the Tiger's more enlightened rule made it impossible for them to continue with their former corruption and bribes. They tried to buy him off, but the Jackal was not interested in their bribes, so then they plotted against him. What they tried to do was set him up by stealing the Tiger's meat and concealing it at the Jackal's den. The Jackal knew of their activities, but he let them do it anyway. Not long after, the Tiger King noticed his food was missing and ordered an investigation to find the thief. His ministers happily reported that it was the jackal who took the meat. The tiger flew into a rage and ordered the jackal to be put to death. Only the tiger's mother was able to get through to him. She reminded her son that his ministers were naturally jealous of the jackal, so they should not be completely trusted on this. Besides, it was well known that the jackal was a vegetarian, so what use had he for the king's meat? This was enough to persuade the tiger to take a second look into the case, and he soon found out the truth. He acquitted the jackal of all charges and restored him to his position. The jackal, however, refused. Instead, he vowed to sit in meditation until he starved to death. The king was dumbfounded. Why would anyone turn down the honor and comforts of royal service in favor of suffering and death? The jackal said, Now that you have shown that you cannot trust me, how could I ever feel secure working for you? And how will you trust me now if you did not really trust me before? Inevitably, this anxiety will weaken your court and help your enemies. Although the king continued to argue and beg him to stay, the jackal retired to the forest, where he sat in Priya and eventually cast off his body and proceeded to heaven. That about wraps up the Shanti Parva, as well as this episode. The book contains a few more parables, but even they mostly devolve into endless discussions of dharma, sin, and virtue, so the stories themselves are far from compelling. It is generally believed that most of these last teachings are later additions to the epic, and I'm inclined to agree. Certainly, the stories are not nearly as interesting as those we found elsewhere in the epic, and the teachings are a far cry from the Bhagavad Gita. Next time, we'll work our way through the second half of Bhishma's teachings, which make up the entirety of the next book, called the Apadharma Anusasana Parva. Thanks for listening.